0: Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Joanne Myers, and on behalf of the Carnegie Council, I'd like to thank you for joining us for this public affairs program. Our speaker is Paul Shari, and he will be discussing Army of None, Autonomous Weapons and the Future of War. There is no question, but his experiences as a former US Army Ranger with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan have not only informed his writings, but have influenced his ideas in creating the US military guidelines on autonomous weapons. He is now heading a program at the Center for New American Security that is focused on technology and security. We are delighted to host him this evening so that he can share his thinking on this topic with us. What will future wars look like? As technology and artificial intelligence advances quickly, moving from the realm of science fiction to designer drawing boards, to engineering laboratories, and to the battlefield, the possibility that machines could independently select and engage targets without human intervention is fast approaching. These new machines or autonomous weapons that are often referred to as killer robots could operate on land, in the air, or at sea, and are threatening to revolutionize armed conflict in alarming ways. And this raises the question of whether future wars will be fought with enemy combatants who wear no uniform, defend no territory, protect no population, and feel no pity, no remorse, nor fear. These new weapons have prompted a debate among military planners, roboticists, human rights activists, legal scholars, and ethicists, all who are wrestling with the fundamental question, which basically boils down to whether machines should be allowed to make life and death decisions outside of human control. In Army of None, our speaker provides a cutting edge vision of autonomous weapons and their potential role in future warfare. Drawing on his own experiences and interviews with engineers, scientists, military officers, Department of Defense officials, lawyers, and human rights advocates, Paul skillfully takes us on a journey through the rapidly evolving world of next generation robotic weapons, while raising the many ethical, legal, military, and security challenges surrounding these new machines. The stakes are high. Artificial intelligence is emerging as a powerful technology. It is coming, and it will be used in war. The real question is, what will we do with this technology? Do we use it to make warfare more humane and precise? Can we do so without losing our humanity in the process, And in the end, do we control our creations or do they control us? For a glimpse into this new world and the challenges that advanced artificial intelligence systems will bring, please join me in welcoming our guest tonight, Paul Sherry. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much, Joanne, for that introduction. Um, I'm Paul Shari. I work at a uh, think tank in Washington DC called the Center for New American Security. Uh, It's a national security focused think tank and I run our program on technology and national security. And so the program I run is focused on how different technologies are going to change US security and what the United States needs to do to take advantage of those technologies and prepare for what others might do. And we work on a range of things from Uh, Twitter bots and Russian disinformation to um, emerging weapons technologies or human enhancement technologies. What I'll talk about today is one aspect of this that i have been working on for about 10 years now. Um, When I was at the Pentagon, working in the Office of the Secretary of Defense as a policy analyst there, and since then working at at the Center for New American Security. Um, As I mentioned, I have a book out, uh, Army of None, And what I want to do is kind of walk you through some of the the highlights of this technology, how it's evolving, what people are doing around the globe, and then some of the legal and ethical or other issues that that come up. And given this this venue, I will try to emphasize in particular some of these ethical concerns that people raise as this new technology um, is developing. So we're in a world today where robotic systems or drones are widely used by militaries around the globe. There are at least 90 countries that have drones today and many non-state actors. The Islamic State um, and others already have access to drones. And 16 countries and counting have armed drones. And you can see on the map where the majority of them are coming from. They're actually coming from China as they spread around the globe. And again, non-state groups have these as well. The Islamic State has built crude homemade armed drones that they're using in Iraq and Syria. For attacks. And they're using them as sort of improvised explosive devices coming from the air to attack uh, US troops and, and others. Now, with each generation, these robotic systems are becoming increasingly autonomous, increasingly sophisticated. In many ways, they're like automobiles. We're seeing with each generation of cars more features being added into them, like self parking, automated cruise control, um, automatic lane keeping. Features that begin to do more automation all on their own inside the vehicle. We're seeing the same thing in robotic systems. And so with each generation, these become increasingly advanced, increasingly autonomous, doing more tasks all on their own. The question that the book grapples with is, what happens when a predator drone has as much autonomy as a self-driving car? Move to something that has been able to do all of the combat functions all by itself. That it can go out, find the enemy, and attack the enemy without asking for permission. Now, we're not there yet. Right now, people are still in control, but the technology is going to take us there. It is being developed not just in military labs, but in commercial labs all around the world. And this technology is very dual use. So the same technology that will allow self-driving cars and will save lives on the roads may also be used in warfare. We're seeing this develop not just in the air, but In other domains as well. This is a picture of a completely, you can see, completely uninhabited boat. There's no one on board. It's being driven autonomously. This one is developed by the uh, United States Office of Naval Research and um, was done in experiments of swarming boats on the James River in Virginia, where multiple boats together would be cooperating their behavior, working as a team all autonomously on their own. Now, when the Navy talked about this, they pointedly said um, that these boats in the future will be armed. Um, People, they said, will still be in control of the weapons for now, um, but it's not clear where this is going in the long term. This is the Israeli Guardian. Um, It's an uninhabited ground vehicle, a fully robotic ground vehicle that has been um, put on patrol on the Gaza border by Israel. It is again armed. Uh, You don't see the machine gun here in the picture, um, but I have one on it. And uh, again, the Israelis have said that the vehicle itself may be autonomous, but the human's going to be in charge of the weapon and controlling whether it's going to fire. Now, not all countries might see this the same way. Um, This is, you see, a much larger system. It looks like a miniature tank. This is a Russian ground combat vehicle called the Uran 9 It's equipped with a heavy uh, machine gun and rockets. Um, The rockets actually are on a sort of extendable arm so it can hide behind a hillside and reach up and fire on uh, NATO tanks. The Russians have said that they envision in the future fully roboticized units will be created that are capable of independent operations. Now what exactly that means is not entirely clear, but it's clearly a much more aggressive vision for robots in future warfare. We're also seeing a number of leading military countries develop stealth drones that would be intended to operate in contested areas. So drones today are largely used to track insurgents or terrorists in places where the insurgents can't shoot the drones down. Um, However, drones like this one, this is the X-47B. It's an experimental drone the US Navy had built several years ago. It's now been retired, but it was designed to push the boundaries forward on autonomy. Here it is landing on an aircraft carrier fully autonomously. It was the first vehicle to do so. It could take off and land on aircraft carriers on its own. It was the first aircraft to do autonomous aerial refueling, which is an important combat function to extend its range into contested areas. And you can see in sort of sleek design, it's intended to have the profile of a stealth aircraft. And This is not an operational aircraft. It doesn't carry weapons on board it. Um, it's actually been retired now. But this and other systems being built by Russia, China, Uh, Israel, the United Kingdom, and France are all designed to be a bridge towards future combat aircraft that would operate in very contested areas. Now the challenge to this idea is that in these contested environments, adversaries are going to be much more equal. And they might have the ability to do things like not just target these with radars and shoot them down, but also jam their communications links, which is really the, the fragile part of these systems. Right now, they depend upon humans. Well, the humans aren't on board, they're flying remotely from somewhere else. If you can jam their communications links, you cut the human out of the system. We've already seen this today, um, the United States has acknowledged that Russia has been jamming the communication links for US drones in Syria. And for today's systems that don't have a lot of autonomy, this might inhibit their operation. The challenge going forward with more future combat aircraft Would be, if you have this aircraft forward in this environment, and the enemy has jammed its communications, what do you want it to do? Does it come home? Does it take pictures? Does it do surveillance operations, but doesn't drop any weapons? Does it, it would be allowed to say, attack pre-planned targets. That's kind of what a cruise missile does today. A human program's in the coordinates of the targets, and the missile goes and does that. What if it came across what the military calls, targets of opportunity, something that would be new. A lot of really valuable military targets are now mobile. So things like mobile missile launchers in North Korea. You can't know in advance where they're going to be. That's why they're mobile, so North Korea can hide them. That's a high value target. Um, We certainly, if there was a war, would be very concerned about finding those missiles and making sure that North Korea doesn't launch them. Would you permit some robotic vehicle like this to make those decisions on its own? So that's the kind of concern that, um, that militaries are going to have to grapple with as this technology matures. They're going to have to write something in the code for what the vehicle can do when its communications are lost. Another issue is self-defense. This is a, um, it's called the Sea Hunter, it's a US Navy ship that is intended to be a robotic ship. Now you can see in the picture there are people standing on it, um, but it can operate fully autonomously with no one on board. It's designed to track enemy submarines. And so it's designed to follow them like a persistent sort of tail on them wherever they go. Um, And but one of the challenges here is if you have this out on the water and the enemy comes up and they try to board it, what are you going to do? There's no one on board to fight them off. Would you let them just take it? Um, Not too long ago, China actually did this. They snatched a US underwater drone in the South China Sea. They They just took it. It was just sitting there. They took it. And afterwards, the United States protested. They said, give us our drone back. And the Chinese said, oh, we're sorry. We didn't mean to. That was some low-level person doing that. We didn't. That was not authorized. And we gave it back. right? So, so how are you going to treat this? You're going to let someone's a $20 million shit. You're going to let someone take that? Or are you going to give it the ability to defend itself on its own? Now, again, if you have communications with it, a human can make those calls. But if you don't, if they jam its communications, again, these are very real problems. Militaries will have to come up with some answer for it. We're also seeing increased autonomy, not just in vehicles, but also advanced missiles. This is an image from the um, US long-range anti-ship missile. It's it's not a photograph, it's it's a a diagram of it. But one of the things you see it doing here is it is doing autonomous routing. So the target is chosen by a person. Person using, for example, maybe satellite imagery will say, there's uh, an enemy ship here. I want to attack this enemy ship. Launches the missile. But then on its way, if the missile runs into a pop-up threat, that's what the red bubble is sort of meant to convey. Don't go into this area, there's enemy there. The missile on its own can decide to route around that. So that's one of the ways that we're seeing more autonomy kind of creep into these systems over time. What this begs the question is, well, what about some future missile that might be setting its own targets? Where the human might say, well, just go out there and look for the enemy and see what you can find. Again, we're not there yet. But the technology will make it possible. Now, we've already had for decades, in militaries around the globe, missiles and torpedoes that have a lot of autonomy on their own. This is um, a high-speed anti-radiation missile. It's a missile that's, being, that's used uh, to target enemy radars. Here it is on uh, a Navy F-18. And one of the ways it works is uh, the pilot will know that there's an enemy radar here. It's a radar signature launches the missile, and the missile has a sensor on board that can sense the radar all on its own. And then it can maneuver towards the radar to make sure that it hits it, it doesn't miss it. And so in that case, it's much smarter, much more intelligent than, say, a a dumb unguided bomb. Weapons of this type have been around for 70 years. The first origin of this was a, a German torpedo in World War II that could listen to the sound of Allied ships' propellers, and then zero towards them. So these are, these are widely used. Many of them are what the military calls fire and forget weapons. Once it's let go, it's not coming back. And the human in that case will have no control over the weapon. But their autonomy, their freedom of the weapon is very bounded tightly. And so it's not given a lot of freedom to say, go over a wide area. You might think of it like um, a police attack dog sent to go chase down a suspect who's running. It's not the same as, for example, um, a stray dog roaming the streets, deciding whoever on its own to attack. Now, that might change going forward. So in these pictures here, you see in the blue um, what I've described, uh, what I'll call a semi-autonomous weapon. One where the human decides the target. The human says, well, there's some tanks here or something else, and lets this weapon go to attack that. And the freedom, which you can imagine um, is sort of represented by the circle there. The freedom the weapon has is very tightly bounded in space and time and what it's allowed to do. The decision is about what happens when we get to something in the red, the fully autonomous weapon that could look over a wide area. One example of this uh, in use today is a drone called the Israeli Harpy drone. So unlike the Harm, the anti-radiation missile that is designed to target enemy radars. The Harpy similarly goes after radars, but it can search over hundreds of kilometers and can loiter over a big area for up to two and a half hours. So now the human doesn't need to know where the radar is. You could just say, well, I think it's likely that there'll be enemy radars in this area, and launch these Harpies, and it will find them all on its own. Then this fundamentally changes the human's relationship with what's happening in the world. Now, the human doesn't need to know the particulars of that situation. The human could say, well, I'm just going to let the robot figure that out. There are some examples of things like this in operation. This is a phalanx gun from a U.S. Navy ship. Um, there's a version of this that has also been put on land um, called the Army's Counter-Rocket Artillery and Motor System, or C-RAM. Um, it is uh, somewhat affectionately referred to by some of the troops as R2-D2, hence the, because of the dome kind of aspect of it. And it's used to defend ships and land bases against incoming missiles. So you know, the counter to all this autonomy in missiles and these smart homing missiles is more autonomy on the other side. Well, what these systems do is most of the time humans are in the loop. Humans are making a decision about what to do. But because the speed of attacks could overwhelm humans, you could have so many missiles coming and humans can't possibly cope. Many of these systems have full auto modes. There's a mode you can switch it to where they don't steam around with a ship on this in peacetime. But in wartime, you could turn it to this mode, and anything that's coming in it's a threat, this gun will go shoot all on its own. If it meets its you know, certain characteristics, certain altitudes, certain speeds, radar signature. There are other examples. This is um, the Army's Patriot Air and Missile Defense System um, deployed here to uh, the Turkish border. Uh, along the, uh, in in Turkey along the Syrian border. This again has an automatic mode. And the Navy's uh, Aegis combat system on a ship, again here seeing, launching a missile. These types of systems are in use by at least 30 countries around the globe today. So in widespread use. Um, And they've been around for decades. This is an image of the Israeli harpy. The harpy's been, So the heart has been transferred to a handful of countries. Turkey, China, India, and South Korea. And China has uh, reportedly reverse engineered their own version of this. Now, we've not yet seen wider proliferation of these weapons. But we have seen some historical examples. In the 1980s, the US Navy had a missile called the Tomahawk Anti-Ship Missile, or TASM, which basically did this. It launched over the horizon to go after Soviet ships. And um, you can see here in this diagram, it was intended to go out and fly the search pattern to look for Soviet ships. Now, this was taken out of service in the 90s. Um, One of the questions that I explore in the book is, if these these weapons of this type have been around for decades, why aren't they in more widespread use, which they're really not by militaries? And I talked to people in the Navy who are familiar with this. One of the things they said was, um, for this weapon system at the time, one of the challenges was, if you're launching it over the horizon... And it can hunt for ships all on its own. If you don't know where the ships are, why are you launching it? It's a missile, it's not coming back, it's expensive. Maybe the ship doesn't have that many of them, they have a limited number. So there was sort of this problem of, like, when am I using this? What's the situation? We haven't seen a lot of these. And there were some experimental programs in the 90s that were canceled. But drones begin to change this dynamic. Because drones are now recoverable. And you can launch the drone to go over the horizon and look for the ships, and if it doesn't find any, that's okay, you still get it back. And so something we may see going forward is more of these systems in use as we see more advanced drones being used by militaries around the globe. We're seeing in a variety of places more autonomy. These are some photos from an experiment I saw out at the Naval Postgraduate School out in Monterey, California. And here they're building these sort of small styrofoam drones. the physical aspects of the drone—it's not very complicated, very simple—the kind of thing that you know, reasonable. Frankly, um, there's so much robotics being done in schools. You know, high school students, maybe even junior high school students, could do on their own now. What's really powerful about these types of systems is the brains of them—the autonomy—and what they're doing is they're building swarms of drones that can operate collectively. So here they're working on um, 10 drones operating as an entire swarm, and they're building experiments. One of the ones I witnessed of swarms fighting other swarms. And so in the air, um, you know, sort of ten versus ten, these swarms fighting each other, and they're trying to figure out the tactics of this kind of warfare. We're also seeing this in cyber systems. This is an image of one variant of Stuxnet, as it spread across uh, the Internet, and across um, various computer networks in Iran and elsewhere. This is again, a very autonomous cyber system. Stuxnet could go out on its own and spread across networks. And then when it found its target, deploy its payload entirely by itself. Um, we're seeing more advanced autonomy in cyber systems. This is an image of mayhem. It was the winning computer from DARPA's Cyber Grand Challenge a couple of years ago. Now what they did is they pitted different teams together to um, do an automated, what they call a capture the flag competition for cyber vulnerabilities. And they had machines like this one scanning software, for vulnerabilities, for ways to hack in and exploit them. And if they found one on their own computer networks, the machine could all by itself patch that vulnerability, fix it up. But if it found one in another network, it would exploit it. It would attack. And they were competing against each other. This was the winner of the competition. Um, these systems are good. They are not better than the top human hackers in the world, but it's in the top 20. So they're good enough to be used in a variety of settings. And in fact, the Defense Department, is using this company's technology to deploy it within its own computer networks to help secure them. So we're seeing more autonomy, not just in physical systems, but in cyber systems as well. A really important issue that this raises, well, what about the laws of war? There has been um, a growing movement of non-governmental organizations um, arguing that these weapons would be illegal under the laws of war. Now, what's interesting is that the laws of war don't actually specify that a human has to make any targeting decisions. What the laws of war talk about is certain principles of effects on the battlefield. Um, You can't deliberately target civilians. The laws of war acknowledge that some civilian deaths might happen in war collateral damage, but that that can't be disproportionate to the military necessity of what a military is trying to do. Um, These are, in some settings, very high bars for these kinds of weapons. So if you were to deploy a weapon like this in, say, a congested, civilian environment in a city, this would be very, very challenging. But there are other settings where you could use these weapons today that would be lawful. For example, if you were sending an autonomous weapon undersea to target submarines. Well, if it's a large metal object underwater, it's a military submarine. It's not a hospital, it's not a school, it's not some other object. It might be your submarine, that's a problem. Um, that's a big problem for militaries using this technology. But it does make, you know, the, the environment in this case makes the legal issues better. One of the open questions and one of the much debated issues in this technology is, as the technology advances, is it likely to get to a place where these machines will be smart enough to be used in ways that comply with the laws of war in other settings? And some people argue that's possible. That um, just like we're going to see self-driving cars, reduce deaths on the roads, on highways, and um, self-driving cars will be better than people. Some people argue these machines might be better than humans at war. Humans make mistakes. Humans commit war crimes. People are not perfect. Others have argued, well, um, you know, that's it's too hard. That's science fiction, and we can't take a chance. And we should ban these weapons today. Another important question is the moral and ethical issues surrounding these weapons. Um, this is, this is in many ways much more interesting, but also much harder to grapple with. Because the laws of war are written down. People all agree on what the laws of war are. They might disagree on interpretations or how hard it would be for the technology to comply, but we know what they are. There are many different competing ethical theories. And there are some ethical arguments saying, well, maybe we should use these weapons because they could save civilian lives and that would be good. And others saying, um, not only might they cause more harm, but there's something fundamentally wrong with the machine making these choices. I want to tell a story about my time in Afghanistan that it illustrates an important point about some of these ethical dimensions of warfare. So it's relatively uh, early on in the war in Afghanistan, I was part of a ranger sniper team that was deployed up um, on a mountaintop near the Pakistan border looking for infiltrators, for Taliban coming across the border. And we, we infiltrated at night. And as the sun rose, um, we found that our position was not as well hidden as we had hoped for. Um, as you can see, uh, this was not the region we were in. This is sort of just Afghanistan as a whole, um, a DOD image. But there's not a lot of cover in a lot of these places, not a lot of trees. And and we were pretty well exposed. And very clearly, it was clear that the, the nearby village, they knew we were there. We weren't hiding from anyone. And it wasn't long after before a little girl came out to scout out our position. And she had a couple goats in tow with her. But it was pretty clear that she was out to check us out. She did this sort of low, long, uh, long circle around us. She was maybe five or six. She wasn't very sneaky. She was sort of like looking at us, you know, and we were looking at her. And, and later we realized um, we heard the tripping of a radio that she was on. She was reporting back information about us. So we watched her walk around us, and, and she looked at us, and she laughed. And not long after, some Taliban fighters came along. Now we took care of them, and the, the, the gunfight that happened sort of um, got the whole village out. And um, eventually, we, we had to leave. But we talked later about what would we do in a similar situation. And so we said, well, we might try to, um, if we saw a civilian in the mountaintop, maybe apprehend them and pat them down, see if they had a radio, if we were compromised right then, or if maybe we had a couple hours before they'd get back to a village and report someone so we could know what to do. Something that never came up was the idea of shooting this little girl. It was not a topic of conversation. Now, what's interesting is it would have been legal under the laws of war. The laws of war do not set an age for combatants. Your combatant status is determined by your actions. And she was scouting for the enemy. She was participating in hostilities that makes her an active combatant. Now, I still think it would have been wrong to shoot this little girl morally, ethically. Here she is, she doesn't know any better. She's been pressed into this. Um, She doesn't want to be part of this war. But if you programmed a machine to comply with the laws of war, it would have killed this little girl. So could we build a machine, and how do we make a machine know the difference between what's legal and what's right? And to deal with, this I think was a relatively simple situation, but in other settings it might be very difficult moral and ethical choices that people face in warfare. And then there are difficult questions about um, what these kinds of weapons might mean for stability among states. Uh, This is an image from the flash crash on Wall Street a couple years ago. We actually have an example about what we might think a domain might look like. Where you have a competitive dynamic. There's an arms race in speed and automation. And what might result, we've already seen this in stock trading. Stock trading is largely automated today. And we have um, bots making trades in milliseconds. In a domain where humans can't possibly react in time. And we've seen instances like this. Where the bots interact in some way that's unexpected. Um, Trading companies aren't going to share their algorithms with their competitor, right? And we're also seeing people exploiting the behavior of these bots when they are predictable. And so in stock trading, what regulators have done is install circuit breakers to take the stocks offline if the price moves too quickly. But how do we deal with this in warfare? When you have autonomous war machines interacting at machine speed and you get something like a flash war. There's no referee to call time out in war. There's no regulator to say, let's all put the pause button. So that's another concern. There's been ongoing discussions for five years now at the United Nations um, among states and non-governmental organizations about this technology. I will tell you progress is moving very slowly diplomatically. If you add up all of the time they spent diplomatically discussing this, it's about five weeks total. Uh they meet for about one week a year. Uh, there's a lot of sort of throat clearing and preamble internationally. Frankly, it took the first year for us to just convince everyone we weren't talking about drones. We get to the end of the first week of discussion and a bunch of countries said, well, this isn't about drones at all. And we're like, no, that's right. This is about what comes next. I'm like, what what does that mean? Like, well, we'll see you next year. Um, so it's it's moving very slowly. Meanwhile, we've got people developing this technology at a, at a breakneck pace not just in military labs, but in but in other commercial companies as well. Um, I want to talk very briefly about the views of some of the senior Pentagon leaders, um, whether you agree with them or not. I think it's valuable for people to know what they've been saying on this. What we've heard repeatedly from them, this is here, um, Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Paul Selva. He's the number two person in the U.S. military. And uh, in the foreground, uh, then Deputy Secretary of Defense, Robert Work. Uh, he's now out. Um, he's actually at The think I'm at the Center for New American Security. But he he at the time was a big champion for robotics and automation and artificial intelligence. And one of the things they've said is that for now, humans will be in control of these weapons. Humans will be making these decisions. But they've said, look, at some point in time down the line, we need to think about what our competitors might do. And if others take the humans out of the loop, and that means that they're faster, we might need to think about how we have to respond. And so I'll close with a quote from General Selva when he basically says that he thinks we should be advocates for keeping people in control, um, lest we lose control of these these robots on warfare. I want to point out, though, I mean, look, he's a military professional. He understands the value of ensuring that uh, the United States is the best on the field, but he still wants people in control. But I will point out that this is a very high-level concept. Right, he's not talking about signing up to a treaty as some have advocated for, banning weapons, or even saying that we need people pushing the button every single time. It's more of a high level concept about people still being in control of what happens in warfare. So as we move forward, one of the challenges with this technology is how do we find ways to use this technology that might enable us to save civilian lives, as we could see happening in other places like cars, but without losing our humanity and without losing human's control over what happens in warfare. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you for raising the right questions. And I'm sure many of you have questions. So I just invite you to go to the microphones and introduce yourself and try to keep your questions brief. Wow. OK. So could you go to the microphone, please?
1: I'll be able to hear you just fine, but I think we've got people on the live stream, so the one people hear you. Right. Question.
0: First of all, I wonder if you'd tell us more about your experience in Afghanistan. Uh, that's number one. But to what extent does human intel play a role in the effectiveness of these robots?
1: Mm, absolutely. Um, human intel is a really key part of um, operations today to better understand um, enemy networks. And so, if you look at, say, drone operations today. Humans are embedded in all aspects of these operations. Um, Really, the the machines aren't making any meaningful decisions, um, but having people on the ground that can give you that information is is incredibly valuable within the Intel world. People people certainly value human intelligence quite a bit. Um, At the same time, over time, in part because of all the technological advantage the U.S. has and all of the data that we're creating, an increasing amount of Intel has been shifted to the technical side. To to technical means, right? To being able to sift through um, signals intelligence and data sources. And you think about all the information that's out there. Look, if you go back 40 years, if you wanted to learn about a person, you had to go through human means. You had to find somebody who knew them and ask questions about that person. Someone gets close to them. Now, you can go on social media and you can get all sorts of information about people. You can, you know, we freely give up information about us. to technology companies about what we hit in a Google search bar or what we you know, communicate with on Facebook or put in emails. So there is an increasingly tremendous amount of data that's out there. And machines are able to help people process that data. And that is something that machines are very valuable for. Where people are still making the decisions, but machines can help sift through all of this and kind of sort it out. And even learn from the data, and then give those information to people.
2: Yes, sir? Don Simmons, I enjoyed your talk very much. You. Um, you mentioned the um, Russians are already able to jam communications to drones, I assume, aerial drones. Um, how about the next step? Is, are, are hacking possibilities uh, there that would enable possibly an adversary to take over control of a drone?
1: Yeah, has that happened? So um. So it depends upon the drone you're talking about and who's building and how sophisticated it is. So a variety of different kinds of attack means you could do. Um, one thing is just jam its communications. Now militaries, advanced militaries like the United States, have the ability to do protected communications. They can build jam-resistant communications. They're more expensive, um, they're gonna be sort of shorter range, but that is possible to do that. Um, it's just harder and, it, and it's gonna be more contested. Um, it's also, in theory, possible to take control of drones. People have done this with commercial drones that don't have encrypted communication links. People, um, a sure couple of years time. ago, uh, a hacker, sort of a, you know, a guy in his garage, built a drone that would go out, fly around a drone, and seek out other drones, and then hack their communications and take control of them, building this sort of zombie drone swarm that he could build up and take control over. Now, for militaries, those um, communications links are encrypted. And so it's going to be harder to hack control of it. But nothing in today's day and age is really ultimately unhackable. Um, It's very hard to do that. And so you know, one of the concerns is that there might be ways into these systems to take control of them or to at least maybe ground them in some way. If you have a a human on board, that's still a risk. You know, if someone finds a vulnerability in you know a joint strike fighter, it's got millions of lines of code. It might not be able to take off. That's a big problem. We've had computer glitches before. The first time that the F-22 flew across the international date line, it had a sort of a Y2K kind of glitch, as the, the time reset when went across the date line. And it zeroed out most of its computer systems. And airplanes, the airplanes almost crashed. If the only reason they made it back was they were with a tanker, that didn't have these computer systems, and they could stick with the tanker. But they lost a lot of their like digital systems. So those are big, big concerns for anything. But there's amplified in a big way about autonomy because there might not be a human there to sort of take control.
0: Linda Richards. Um, Autonomy for automobiles is progressing at a rate that's very public as far as the timeline, which is 2020 to be mass produced and out on the roads. So um, I can't believe that the defense side of this is moving less quickly is there a reality that there will be time to make any of these moral choices?
1: Um, if, if you're concerned about the pace of things and sort of we need to have time to do this, the biggest thing in your favor is the slowness of the defense acquisition system. It's <laughs> Right? That's actually the thing that's going to buy you time. So, so when you look at what's happening in research labs at places like DARPA or the Office of Naval Research, they're doing very cutting-edge systems. In the defense world, well, they talk about what they call the valley of death. So you got like DARPA or somebody else builds these really sophisticated technologies. And then there's this this giant chasm that they have to cross bureaucratically to actually get into the force in large numbers. Um, And and part of that is a lot of bureaucratic red tape. And um, there's a lot of of procedures in place that are very risk averse that make things move very slowly. Um, But also some of it is cultural. Some of it is just like in other fields, people don't want to give up their jobs. And so for example, I showed earlier, back up a second. So here's the X-47B drone, this is the backside of it, on the aircraft carrier. Now you would think that this is sort of a bridge to some future of the stealth combat aircraft. That's what it was intended to do. That is not the case, because in the naval aviation community, the pilots, they don't want it. And so even though this aircraft is several years old, it's been shelved. It's, it's been you know, taken away out of service. And it was intended to be a sort of a bridge to a stealth combat drone. The Navy's not doing that. They're actually building a tanker aircraft that's not intended for combat operations. It's just gonna give gas. Because nobody wants to do that. Right? Nobody signs up to be tanker pilot. That's not a fun job. Um, and so that's a place where the people in uniform are very happy to have the robot do that job. Um, so I think that there is there's this weird dichotomy of the technology is moving forward at a really quick pace terms of what's possible, but in implementing it. Some of the people that are most resistant actually are people in uniform who they don't wanna give up control.
0: But you are describing the US government, not the rest of the world. That's right.
1: And so you're gonna see different, certainly different things in, um, in terrorist groups where they might see it very differently. And I think in other countries as well that might see it very differently. It's a good point. Uh,
2: yes, sir. WPS Sidhu from NYU. Thank you for a fascinating presentation. I'm sorry I came in a little late. Two sets of questions. Uh, and both of them in some ways could relate to Afghanistan. Uh, one is, you know, there's been certain uh, restrictions on traditional warfare, uh-huh. uh, the nature of warfare, because of geographical constraints, right? You talked about being exposed in Afghanistan, you know, not much cover. Right. The one thing with autonomous weapon systems is that geography is almost irrelevant. Uh, you can go where human beings, uh, you know, cannot survive, yes. uh, you yes. know, the right. deep oceans, mountains, deserts, uh, you can loiter for much longer, etc. So that's in one way we're going to change the entire nature of warfare yes. as we've known it, which has until now been constrained by human ability, right? So one sort of sense of, you know, what's your response to that? But the second is you touched on how this was likely to be much more relevant mm-hmm in countries which are at kind of the similar uh, level of, uh, you you know, let's say highly urbanized, highly wired societies, how effective would this be, again, in the case of Afghanistan, where you're fighting, you know, where really, you know, it's not state of the art at all. Uh, So in
1: both of those situations, thank you. Yeah. Those are great questions. So in the geography, this is I'm gonna, this is really gonna oversimplify things a bit. But one of the things I hear people say is I'll talk about sort of human domains, um, particularly in land warfare or areas where they're, you know, in cities where there are lots of humans around, and then machine domains. People will either machines, places where people either can't go there geographically or it's very hard. So, example might be undersea. It's very hard to fight undersea if they have a giant submarine. Now, robots begin to change that. So now, I, with robots, I can fight undersea. I can track enemy submarines, where I have to put a vehicle down there. But it doesn't have to be this gigantic submarine that's got a you know, place for people to sleep, and it's got water, and it's got food. Like, it's hard to keep people alive underwater. water. That's, that's not a natural environment. Where with robots, I don't need all of these life support systems. So that has potentially very profound effects on how you fight and what you could do with the technology. And militaries are very seized of those advantages. There are other places like space where you know, most of what goes on in space is, I guess, robotic with satellites. Um, um, particularly, this is the case in cyberspace, which is like an inherently machine domain. Um, it's native to machines, and the machines are interacting at speeds sometimes that humans can't possibly respond to. So you're gonna see much more of that, I think, in those kinds of spaces. Um, sometimes when I hear people talk about this, is people will be like, oh, you know. And that's fine, we're not worried about the machines in those places. I think it depends on what you care about. So if what you care about is civilian casualties, then yeah, like space and undersea is fine. If what you care about is some of these other harms, like you know instability between nations or unintended effects, some of these domains you care quite a bit about. Like the internet, everything is on the internet. If you lose the internet, like how are cities going to get food? Like That's a huge problem. Um, Gas pumps won't work. Like there's a lot of things that we rely upon now. And we actually, even though 30 years ago we didn't need all this technology, we didn't use it, we've stripped away those old redundancies. Um, and we don't rely on them anymore. We don't have like the same resilience that you might, you might imagine you want to have actually if you thought that these systems were very fragile and vulnerable. Um, and your second thing about, about wired things, so I'll, give you, I'll tell you a story. Um, uh, a good friend of mine um, who used to work at, at CNAS and now works in the Pentagon, um, he was running several years ago war game. He was looking at all these different new technologies and robots and things. And there were a bunch of military, US military people and NATO people in the audience. And then as well as some, some military people from, from other partner countries that Warner as uh, technologically advanced. And in this case, there was um, a military officer from a Middle Eastern country, who, um, smaller kind of country. And they were talking about, so this future scenario and they have all this new technology in. And, um, And he said, raised his hand and said, that's great, you guys have all this stuff. Let me tell you what I would do. I would train my forces to fight in the dark. I would have nothing, and I would jam all of your communications, and all of your electronics, and I would make you try to fight in the dark with me. And you guys wouldn't be ready for that. And so this asymmetry is I think really important um, in both how people might counter these new technologies, but also in some of these settings, the technology is maybe not that decisive. I mean, you know, we fighting when we fought these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We still have people uh, in Afghanistan. The we can have all this technology; we still fighter jets and everything else, and it doesn't necessarily translate to this decisive advantage on the ground. Um, and Particularly in those kinds of conflicts, we're trying to win over people. That doesn't really help. Mm-hmm. I just want to ask a follow-up question:
0: yeah. Do you think, I mean, with the reference? Cyberspace, do you think we should be more concerned about using autonomous weapons in cyberspace and on the
1: ground? I actually am more concerned, yes, thank you for that. So um, sometimes I hear military leaders talk about this and they're like, oh, like, but in cyberspace we'll just automate and that's fine. Um, I am more concerned, I think we're likely to see the technology move there faster because, because it is native to machines in ways that like, actually building a ground vehicle that can maneuver on the ground autonomously is actually really, really hard. Um, What people are able to do for self-driving cars is they map the environment down to the centimeter. They know the height of the curbs and where everything is. They know where the stoplights are. The Machines aren't just like figuring it out on the fly. There's a lot of data that they use to feed that. In military environments, they're not going to have that data. Um, They may not have GPS to know the position of the systems. So it's even harder. And so even simple things like recognizing a pothole is very challenging, actually, for for, um, computer vision. But I think we're likely to see it faster in cyberspace. I think the risks are greater. Um, there's greater pressures for automation and speed. And so, yeah, I do think it's a concern. It's something I dig into in the book. Um, and I also really conclude that I think on the physical <laughs> level, these ideas of a flash war um, are probably probably not that plausible. You might, have, you might have interactions. You can imagine interactions among robots. So you can imagine a future where instead of a Chinese naval officer grabbing that underwater drone the US have, it might be a Chinese robot. And maybe they start interacting in some way, because you programmed out robots like, hey, if they try to grab you, like shoot it. And then maybe you get some kind of weird effect where like they shoot each other. But it's 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 likely to at least happen because of the constraints of physics in the physical domain, at speeds that humans could begin to react to. Are there risks? Yes. But it's entirely different in cyberspace. You could have all these interactions happening in milliseconds, far faster for people to respond.
2: Yes, Jared Silberman. good to see you again. Great to see you. Yes. Great, wonderful talk. Thank uh, you. Jared Silberman, Columbia Bioethics and Georgetown Law. One of the slides you showed, the LRASM, you described it, I think, as a missile, but it looked awfully close to being able to come back like mm. a drone, so I wanna bridge that with you and see would that like affect treaty law and so forth and how that is, and then the second part of that is Getting drones to recognize the signs of surrender ah. to go in in that process, so, not to make it too difficult. <laughs>
0: so,
1: it's like a lot, a lot of stuff there. You managed to. I remember from a time in the Pentagon, you asked hard questions and like mind-bending <laughs> questions then, and you're doing it now again. All right. So El uh, right. Rasm, and then uh, surrender. So, um, so as the technology is advancing, we're seeing a bit of a blurring of the lines between what we think of as missiles and drones. So the Harpy that I showed earlier back up for this. It's referred to as a drone, um, but it's it's one way. It's, it's like it's not coming back. Um, at least you don't want it coming back at you. Um, it's, it's more like a loitering kind of missile. Um, the El shown... Oh, no, is it four? Here we go. Um, oh, I see, let me see a back up for it, because I want to show the pictures so people don't understand what you're... What you're Talking about here. Um, there we go. Here, right. So it's got these little fins on it. The fins really help it cruise for long periods of time. Um, it's you think of it like a cruise missile. It can be launched from either ships or from aircraft. It's not intended to be recoverable, so you don't. You really don't want this thing coming back at you. Um, it doesn't. But but you are seeing things that start to kind of blend this line, and sometimes it does raise challenging issues around treaties and regulations. Um, One of the interesting effects sometimes with these new, these technologies that are evolving, is sometimes people can write down a treaty based on the technology at the time. And this is very challenging for trying to deal with regulating these. And then technology evolves in a way that people didn't predict, Um, they didn't foresee. One of the challenges today is there's a set of, there's a non-proliferation regime called the Missile Technology Control Regime that is intended to control the spread of ballistic and cruise missiles. It classifies drones as missiles. It did so in the 1980s and in an era where drones were not what we think of as today as aircraft. They were basically missiles. They were very simple kind of target drones that were one way. You'd point them and they just kind of keep going. Um, now, when you move to today, we have drones that look much more like real aircraft. We even have things that are people call optionally manned, um, where the human could hop in it and fly it, or the human could hop out, and they could fly by itself. And the technology is sort of blurring this line, um, but we're stuck, the US and and people who signed to this are sort of stuck with this legacy of the regulations at the time. So it is a real big challenge for regulating how these technologies are evolving. Um, Surrender, so there's an important difference, I didn't get into too much, but um, important difference here between autonomous weapons that might target physical objects and those that would target people. So legally, both are valid. All right, so if you're an enemy combatant, it's okay to target that person. As a practical matter, it's much harder to distinguish between, say, a human um, civilian versus a combatant. In many wars, people aren't wearing uniforms anymore. Whether they're combatants is going to be base- based on their behavior. This is hard for people. So you might be in a situation where someone's approaching you in an alleyway, and you don't know whether it's some civilian who's coming up to ask you some question or it's somebody with a suicide vest on underneath. Or you might see somebody who's got a weapon. I would see in the mountains in Afghanistan um, men who were armed all the time. And they weren't actually combatants. They weren't Taliban. They were people who carried a gun to protect their property against bandits and raiders and other things. There's no like law enforcement out there. So that was their means of self-protection. And that doesn't mean that they're an enemy. You can't, you can't shoot them. Um, so I think that if we think about targeting people, all of these legal things become much, much, much more challenging. And one of them is um, what, the milit- what the laws of order refer to as order combat. It's a French term for out of combat. What it says is that an enemy combatant is no longer an enemy combatant if they've either surrendered or if they've been incapacitated and they're out of the fight. Now, it doesn't mean they're just wounded. If they're wounded and they're still fighting, then they're still, they're still in the fight. But if they're wounded and they're out, let's say they're knocked unconscious or they're, just, they're out of it, then, then you can't target them anymore. You can't go around just sort of killing the wounded. Um, these are really important rules they put a restraint on sort of the, the killing and, and things that would happen in warfare. But they're very hard for machines to comply with. You think, well, how would I build a machine that could recognize this? So you might say, well, I'm going to tell the machine, if someone raises their arms like this and waves like a white piece of cloth, then they've surrendered. Well, first of all, how does the enemy know that's what they have to do? How do you effectively communicate that to them? That may not be culturally the same signal that they have for surrender. That may be something completely different. Um, But the other problem is, let's say you tell the machine to do this. Now, once I learn that, all I have to do is like, okay, I've surrendered. Here I come, I'm still coming, I've surrendered, right? Humans can see through these kinds of ruses. Like humans can go like, they're not really surrendering, that's a fake surrender. And they can figure out how to respond. But machines don't have some sort of, kind of the broad intelligence that humans have, where they can see the broader context of what's happening. Um, we can we can build machines that could beat humans at poker, interestingly, but they don't do it the way humans do, where the humans have like a theory of mind, they're trying to, is this person bluffing? They're just really, really good at understanding the odds and making really precise bets. Um, and so this is like a really, really difficult challenge. It's possible, I don't know, but it's possible that one could argue that this is, intrinsically just too hard for machines. And that it, I think there was a case to be made, I sort of argue this in the book, I'm not saying I'm taking this position, but it's one that's out there, that this is so hard that building machines that could target people should simply be off limits, for that reason. Thanks. We have time for a couple more questions, if anyone
0: has one. If not, I'll ask you one Yes. Um, do you think that we're innovating in the right direction? Are we developing the tools necessary? Or who comes up with the ideas to develop these machines?
1: The, again, the big challenge here is um, there's really brilliant people in uh, the United States as a whole, in the defense enterprise. Um, there's a, I do think that there are many um, obstacles towards the U.S. innovating the way that I think we should be. One of them is that a lot of this technology is happening outside of the traditional defense sector. So it's happening out in places like Amazon, and Google, and Facebook, and others. Um, If you look at some of the artificial intelligence, that's where all the action is. It's not actually in defense companies. Um, And it's it's a struggle bureaucratically to get these companies to want to work with the Defense Department. There are a lot of sort of self-imposed barriers that the Pentagon creates to making it hard for companies to work with them. But there are also some cultural issues. There was just a big um, flop a couple weeks ago where it came out publicly that Google had been working with the Pentagon on um, a Pentagon project called Project Maven that was being used to use artificial intelligence tools that Google's made to process drone video feeds. So, one of the things that we could do with artificial intelligence is build um, object classifiers, image classifiers that can identify objects. And they can actually beat humans at benchmark sort of tests for this. So, the idea is that you take these tools, you feed them into drone video feeds. And then um, they can sift through these thousands of hours of video feeds to identify things of interest for people. They could say, instead of having a human stare at these drone feeds um, for hours on end, you could have this algorithm um, watch the drone feed. And if you're looking for, say, a certain type of vehicle, or a human comes out of this compound, it would alert the human. Watch for that. Um, It's a good use of the technology. there was a big blow up inside Google after this came out that this had happened. And eventually over 3,000 Google employees signed an open letter to their CEO saying, we don't, we don't support this, we don't want to do this. Um, this is their own country, right? So I think like when you think about this, and this isn't like, the, the AI's AI not killing anyone. It's actually not being used for autonomous targeting. Humans are still in control. And this is being used to target terrorists that are trying to kill Americans. But you have such a cultural divide between um, Pentagon and the Silicon Valley that you have people saying like, I just don't support this, I don't want to do this. I think it's really interesting when you think about this kind of um, historically, it's hard for me to imagine something like, you know, Ford Motor Company employees you know standing up during World War II and saying like we don't want to support, you know, Ford working with the US government. Um, and yet that's that's I think one challenge. Um, another challenge is this valley of death I talked about, there are cultural challenges in importing this technology. Um, so, I do think it's, it's, a, it's a struggle to ensure the US stays ahead, in particularly areas like artificial intelligence. Um, others are, have made very clear they intend to take the lead in the space. China last year put out a national strategy for artificial intelligence. They are a major player in the space. Depending on who I talk to on the tech side, they will say either the Chinese are right behind US companies, right equal, or sometimes com- I've heard some very knowledgeable people in tech companies say that the Chinese are a little bit ahead. And China has said their goal is to be the global leader in artificial intelligence by 2030. And they have a plan to do that. Um, And we don't have anything like that in the United States. We don't have a national plan. Um, We don't have major R&D into the space. We don't have a plan for human capital, which is what really matters here. Things like STEM education um, and or immigration policy, right? In fact, we have an immigration policy coming out of the White House that actively discourages people from coming to the United States. Why would we do that? Right? We want the smartest people from the world to come here and stay here, right? Come to the US. Um, that's one of our best advantages. So I do think that that's a, it's a big challenge. And I think that we've, you know, we've become accustomed for, for decades to a world where the US is the world's leader in technology. That is not a birthright. And um, we are in a technology race with others. And if we want to win that race, we've got to compete.
0: Well, thank you for leading us in a fascinating discussion. And Paul's book is available. Thank
1: you.